for today's case, we're going to go back in time a little bit to New York City in the 1970s. It's a case of a young woman who is enjoying her life. It's also a unique case where Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck were used to help solve it. I'm your host, Koi, and this is the story of Roseanne Quinn. Okay, I won't lie. When I think of New York City in the 70s, I think of The Godfather. But don't worry, this is a much different story. Roseanne Quinn was born on November 17th, 1944, in the Bronx of New York. Her dad was John Quinn, and her mother was also named Roseanne. She had two brothers, John and Dennis, and a sister named Donna. When Roseanne was 11, her family moved to Dover, New Jersey, where her dad took a job as an executive with Bell Laboratories. And just a fun fact about Bell Labs, it was started by Alexander Graham Bell. He used prize money from inventing the telephone to start Bell Labs, which is a telecommunications company. In its early days, the lab focused on analysis, recording, and transmission of sound. Today, Bell Labs is now called Nokia Bell Labs. Anyways, I feel like I could follow that whole rabbit hole for a whole new sort of podcast. When Roseanne was 13 years old, she was hospitalized after a back operation, and she was in the hospital for about a year. This left her walking with a slight limp for the rest of her life. In 1962, Roseanne graduated from Morris Catholic High School. She then attended Newark State College, where she majored in elementary education, and she graduated from college in 1966. Not long after graduating, she moved back to New York City. She made the trip to Newark, New Jersey every day for three years, where she worked as a teacher. Then in September of 1969, she started teaching at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in the Bronx. Roseanne taught a class of eight-year-olds. She was well-loved by the students, and she often stayed late after school to help kids with various tasks. A few years later, in May of 1972, Roseanne moved into a studio apartment at 253 West 72nd Street in Manhattan. Everything in Roseanne's life seemed to be going great. She was very outgoing. She had a rather large circle of friends from many different backgrounds. Roseanne would often go to neighborhood bars where she would sit and read books. She started attending night classes at Hunter College, and by December of 1972, she was about halfway through completing the requirements for her master's degree, which specialized in teaching deaf students. Wednesday, January 3rd, 1973, was a rather cold day in New York City. While temperatures hovered around 30 degrees Fahrenheit, a much colder discovery was about to be made. Roseanne hadn't shown up or called work for about two days. The school administrator sent a teacher to Roseanne's apartment to check on her. When there was no answer at the door, 
the building superintendent let the teacher in Roseanne's apartment. As the teacher walked in, he was met with a sight that was the last thing he ever expected to see. Roseanne Quinn, covered in blood, lying in her bed. My goal is to make this a pretty fast ad. A couple years ago, I wrote a book called One Moment. It's about a guy named Micah. He never planned to return to his hometown in Florida, but things don't always go as planned. While he's back home, he's dealing with the mental, physical, and emotional impact of being in a war. He then meets Sarah, and she is escaping an abusive marriage. The two have an undeniable bond, and a relationship that begins. When the abusive ex finds out about this new relationship, he gets involved in their lives. While this puts a strain on the relationship, it's only the beginning, because dark secrets start to come out. And the truth is, maybe you never really know anyone. There are a few ways that you can get this book if you're interested. The Amazon link is in the show notes if you just want the book. Or you can join my Patreon community for $5 a month. You'll get two extra true crime episodes, a copy of One Moment, and a few other perks. That link is also in the show notes or on my social media pages. Anyways, hopefully this ad was fast enough, and thank you for listening. Back to the episode. Police were called and began their investigation. The room was covered with blood, splattered across the walls, the bed, and the floor. Roseanne was lying in bed. She didn't have any clothes on, but a bathrobe was laid over her. There were 18 stab wounds, there was bruising around her neck, and bite marks on her body. She was sexually assaulted with a broom handle, which was still lodged inside of her body. The medical examiner estimated that she was killed at least 24 hours prior to when she was found. The shower in the bathroom was still running with water. As investigators looked around more, they found a knife in the kitchen sink that had a bent blade on it. The investigators believed that this was the murder weapon and that it was bent from striking bone. The other thing that was noted was that there were no signs of forced entry, which led them to believe that Roseanne probably knew her killer. The other odd thing was that there were no fingerprints at all on the doorknobs inside or on the knife that was found in the sink. And you would at least expect to have Roseanne's prints in areas that were common for her to touch, which led them to believe that the scene had been wiped down. Investigators then began diving into Roseanne's life. They believed if they knew more about her, they would find the killer. They started talking to Roseanne's neighbors, and they came up with nothing. Investigators started going around to nearby buildings to talk to people at businesses like dry cleaners, restaurants, stores, and bars, trying to see if anyone knew her or could help retrace her last steps. They went to one bar called Tweeds. The owner was in there working at the time. With Roseanne's habit of going to bars often and reading, she definitely stood out to the owner, and he knew exactly who they were describing. In fact, He and Roseanne had become pretty good friends over the years, as she had frequented his bar. And he said that she was in the bar that Monday night. 
and the owner of the bar did give them one name to look into. He told them about a guy named Freddy from about a year prior. He described Freddy as being sort of a rough guy. He met Roseanne at the bar and went home with her. The next day, she showed back up at the bar. She had bruises and a black eye. Investigators went back to the apartment building. This time, they were looking for anyone that remembered an incident about a year ago. One neighbor did recall seeing Roseanne beat up pretty badly after hearing a lot of yelling and screaming coming from the apartment. The neighbor rushed into the apartment to check on her as a guy was rushing out. This guy was believed to be Freddy. Investigators were able to find the bartender that was working that Monday night, the night that Roseanne was there. When they asked if he saw Freddy, he also knew who Freddy was, but said that Freddy was not at the bar that night. The bartender said that Roseanne was there most of the night, and she was talking to a few of the normal customers. But then there were two guys that stood out to him that he did not recognize. He said that the two guys hung out together most of the night, and then one of them left, and the other stayed behind and started talking to Roseanne. So then investigators went back to the bar. This time they were trying to talk to any of the regular customers that were there on Monday night. People knew which two guys the investigators were talking about, but the problem they ran into was that just about everyone described the guys differently, which isn't too unusual trying to think back to when they saw a person. It wasn't like they saw them at the bar and they knew that they would need to memorize their facial features for a police sketch a few days later. But there was one guy who was at the bar and he wanted to talk to the cops privately. He said that one of the guys struck up a conversation with him. He said that his name was Charlie Smith and that he was from out of town. The guy tells investigators that he told Charlie Smith that he was an artist and he ended up drawing two sketches for Charlie. They were of Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. When the detectives heard this, everything changed in this investigation. Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse were the first real big leads that they had. Because when they were at Roseanne's apartment, they saw those sketches. Now, they did expect that Charlie Smith was a fake name. Six days later, investigators released the sketch of Charlie Smith in the newspaper. And it had the exact effect that they were hoping it would. A man named Gary Guest came to police, telling them that he had information on Roseanne's murder. Gary said that he was at Tweed's bar that Monday night with a friend. He was one of the two guys that people pointed out as not being regulars there. He was the second guy that was with Charlie Smith. Gary ended up going home early, leaving Charlie at the bar. Whenever Gary was asked about Charlie Smith, Gary said that Charlie Smith was a fake name. The man's real name was John Wayne Wilson. He was 23 years old at the time. He was from Indiana, he never finished high school, and one day he randomly moved to New York. Gary met him in 1970. The nature of their friendship it was a little complicated. The first night that they met, John went home with Gary. They continued to have some sort of romantic relationship, but 
John had a wife back in Florida. He also had a difficult time finding work around New York City, so he became a sex worker. And then Gary ended up letting John move in with him. Gary then told investigators about that Monday night. Whenever he left the bar, he left John there. He went home and went to bed. Later that night, Gary woke up. John was sitting on the couch, but something was off with him. He was serious and seemed very focused on something. John then confided in Gary that he killed the girl from the bar. Gary said that he finally decided to come to police because whenever they released the sketch in the newspaper, he thought that it looked more like him than it did John, which also may explain why everyone in the bar kept describing the suspect to be a little bit differently. There were two guys that were around, so each person may have remembered a little bit of details of one or the other. Gary told police that the day after the murder, John left New York to go to his brother's house in Indianapolis. Investigators then took a little road trip to the brother's house. They were a little surprised whenever they met John. He was more than willing to talk with them, and agreed to go to the police station. Then, when the interview began, John had a rather unique approach. He denied ever even being in New York. He said that he had recently been in Florida with his wife. They asked him about being at Tweed's bar. He said that he was never there. They asked him about meeting a girl named Roseanne Quinn. He said that he had never met her. And it didn't take long, and investigators finally dropped the news that Gary said that John was in New York, and that he told them about the murder. And John, well, he couldn't hold it in any longer. There was definitely a physical and emotional reaction from John. He felt betrayed by the person that he thought he could trust, and there was no way of him hiding that reaction. After hearing that Gary had already talked to the police, John ended up confessing to the murder of Roseanne Quinn. The truth finally started coming out. Well, I'll use truth lightly. It was John's version of events. Roseanne invited John back to the apartment. Back at the apartment, John was having troubles trying to, um, say, perform. He claimed that Roseanne then insulted him about his performance issues. He then snapped. He began to strangle her. And then he went to the kitchen and he returned with a knife where he proceeded to stab her. After the murder, John took a shower, cleaned himself up, he washed the knife in the sink, and he cleaned everywhere that he would have touched where fingerprints may be. But as careful as he was with everything else, he did forget the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck sketches behind. Now, as I mentioned, this is what he claimed happened. The Roseanne, the innocent schoolteacher who devoted her life to teaching deaf children, insulted him to the point of killing her. There were only two people in the room that night, and he was the only one left to paint a picture of what happened. But there is another theory of what really happened. John was having a stressful time. He found out that his wife in Florida was pregnant. He tried to find legitimate jobs, but no one would hire him. 
The only thing that he was able to do to make money was have sex. Then, that night, he could not do the one thing that defined who he was. John was now failing at the only thing he had ever been able to do. Then he had to take control in some way, and he snapped, and he began strangling Roseanne. When John was arrested, he was sent to the Manhattan Detention Center, which is also known as the Tombs, where he awaited trial. After a few weeks there, John was sent to a hospital to be tested for brain damage. The defense attorney planned to use this as an insanity defense. He stayed there for several weeks, but tests were never given to him to confirm if he had brain damage or not. I'm not sure why the tests were never given, but they weren't. When he returned to the tombs, and actually real quick, just another little rabbit hole here. The jail received the nickname of the tombs because the original one in 1838 was designed with an Egyptian architectural style. And anyways, whenever John returned back, he was suicidal. But the cells for the suicide watch were full, so he was placed in a regular cell. In May of 1973, John engaged in an argument with a prison guard where he threatened to kill himself. The guard taunted him and threw him a bedsheet. On May 5, 1973, John used the bedsheet to hang himself in his cell. Roseanne's funeral was held back in New Jersey. She was buried at St. Mary's Church, just a mile from her parents' home. Roseanne's story was also the inspiration behind the 1975 book, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, written by Judith Rosner. The book went on to sell 4 million copies and became a New York Times bestseller. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode. Be sure to follow on Instagram, Facebook, and now TikTok at Crime Nerds Podcast. I hope you all have a great day, and thank you for listening.